0: The exchange of goods and services has existed since the earliest forms of civilization, from simple barter arrangements at the local town square to Phoenician traders navigating the Mediterranean with goods from Europe and North Africa. Today, however, the scope of exchange is truly massive, with online commerce coming to dominate nearly all segments of retail and the scale encompassing trans-oceanic trade routes totaling 11 billion tons in maritime cargos in 2021. Underpinning all this lies an extremely complex web of producers, shippers, pipelines, warehouses, and commodity traders that include the massive concerns such as Coke Industries and Energy and Glencore and Metals, with over 100,000 employees each. Billions of dollars have been made and lost in commodities futures, and as volatility continues to disrupt prices of everyday items from gasoline to grain, the trend of ever tighter global trade integration, seen since the end of the Cold War, may start to unravel as regional blocks choose to have closer and more reliable supply chains. Well, I'm not a crook. I burned everything I got. Military industrial complex.
1: A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been my feeling
0: hello and welcome back to the myth of the 20th century we are still here uh, and tonight we're going to be talking about the wide world of commodities and commodities trading. And uh, Nick is here uh, with his refreshment that I thought would be a good visual for people to understand a little bit more about supply chains in the commodity space. So, Nick, you are holding, I assume, a bottle or a can or of some sort uh, to hold your beverage Oh, in. yeah. Well, it's a... It's a- doppelbach lager that
1: came in a bottle that i then put into a glass a pint glass specifically
0: right and uh nick nick was uh giving me um some uh, lighthearted jibbing about my my thought of using this as a illustration vehicle but if any of you have ever watched um 1980s Style PBS shows with uh, the likes of Milton Friedman. He was pretty famous for the story of the pencil and how it was uh, it See, was I produced. You did, I was, although I wasn't sure it, if was you like, meant Jordan Belfort by, by this pen, pen, but yeah, it was it no, was, no, no. I meant
1: yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm,
0: the, exactly. the i i the the
1: They saw that shit too. The old free. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 and it's like, ah, oh, the simple pencil. How does this come to be? Well, you need a forest. Choose
1: debt slavery.
0: You need rubber, <laughs> <laughs> and you need graphite. Uh, and how do these things all come together? Is it is it a master central plan by the the masters of the universe in New York or Washington deciding how this pencil comes together? No, it is a free market of prices signaling to people that they should produce a certain amount of wood. Uh, and sell at a certain price and then the market comes together and the pencil is born well similar story I think for Nick's beer we obviously have the raw ingredients that go into it there are uh, well you know more about liquor Nick than me but uh, whatever you use for alcohol water and uh, some uh, yeast and then the uh, the barley or hops or whatever X you know, grains they put in there. All those things are, are traded except for maybe water. It's kind of a utility, but you know, glass, you, you have to buy that stuff. It's silica there's, melted there's, down. There's
2: lots of water futures
0: water oh that's scary that's like the james bond uh movie i mean right?
2: this is this is the sort of much uh you know didn't uh, drama. Nestle, like buy uh, up uh, a bunch of access to the great lakes who well, did
1: did the, i remember that, that that
2: was that was only partially oh, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, i think people
2: so. have been trading people have been trading well riparian rights uh, have been a facet of western civilization for thousands of years so that's not new. Private rights surrounding water is not new. Commoditizing access to water is also not new. For, you know, commoditizing and selling fresh water at certain prices is not new. Additionally, you know, people have been selling canned or bottled with plastic or glass water, different varieties for <clears throat> hundreds of years now, that's not new. A lot of the, you know, the um, yeah, soy facing over, uh, you know, Mohican water futures was really just sort of your like, kind of generic lib outcry over like token topic. Um, and it was specifically this idea that it was somehow negatively going to impact, you know, uh, m- uh, my third worlders, you know, m- m- POC. In reality, um, Nestle was just taking advantage of what was already kind of in place. And there's plenty, plenty of waters trading uh, on the market nowadays. And there's plenty of exchange of forbearing rights. There's access to freshwater reserves that are often privatized and sold for.
0: What's the uh, the ticker symbol? uh, T-H-R-S-T thirst? (laughs) Or what's the... How do you find this on on your stock brokerage account?
2: There's dozens of them. It's not. They're not even uncommon anymore. I don't even. I don't even know them off the top of my head.
0: But there's companies. Is, yeah, I didn't know there was a whole, future. There's though. whole
2: companies. There's a whole futures market for water. There's a whole futures market for. Uh, well, not futures market necessarily, but there's. Uh, well, how do you
0: take delivery? Like, are you familiar with delivery? You know, and then holding it until expiration. I mean, You're, you, you, you know, have you to receive these the
2: things. Bottle of Dasani water, like it's a vending. You get a shit, crate man. of water. <laughs> yeah, how is that any wow. different from oranges? Like,
0: you know, this isn't this isn't. Water's heavy, and it's not valuable yeah, sure. per so, per unit of weight as, so as metal. oranges are. We have received your water, more I,
2: So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's you plenty of like a of trading stuff, maybe around water. In fact, you know, I think that the days of water as uh, this is what a lot of the debate was around. But you know, the ship had sailed, so to speak. Um, water has been a privatized, uh, private commodity, often a part of private land. Uh, repair, again, riparian rights is the technical legal term mm-hmm. for hundreds of years in the United States and, and around the world. This is actually a sign of you being a relatively civilized normal country. Because if you can effectively uh, and you know, peacefully manage water rights and water distribution through uh, through private means and with you know, oversight of some kind of civil body. But This is like pretty normal stuff that has been going on forever. So it never, it never made sense to me when there was all of the like the the outpouring of of concern from like, you know, Nestle or whatever buying up some water rights. Like, man, people have been doing that forever.
0: This is not new. Okay, but you said there are futures, so if yes. you could yeah, the point me to an exchange. The possibility of water
2: scarcity is new. So the so here's the thing: the possibility of water scarcity is actually what is driving the commoditization of water to begin with that that is that is the if you ask anyone who's involved in the finances of that, that is what they would say. They would say that the the fundamental scarcity drives commoditization and drives, Financialization it drives,
0: it drives financialization. I don't know it, if, it, if it drives commodification. Commodity is basically defined as the only a, a product is a commodity if the only differentiating aspect of it is its yeah, price. But, well, and, so and you could say that about water pretty much. H two O in the modern
2: like, right. in the modern financial sense, in the sense that we can productize it, we can package it, we can distribute it.
0: Okay, and we can I would say that's financializing, personally.
2: Well, it has Just to be scarce. Thing. Yeah, it's it so does. Not it does. Yeah, otherwise
0: there's no point in buying scarce. it if you can get it for free, like air. The you're commodification pay for it. is something.
2: Yeah. yeah. scarcity. <clears throat> the, the the scarcity of water is driving a lot of this, specifically because a there's uh, a great deal of profit to be made. But I think that um, in, increasingly, you know, this is really um, in line with basic economics and it's not too uh, different from uh, the fundamentals of i would say um, commodities trading in the metals market where you know this is in theory this is something that you can just go out and find right you can just dig under the earth a certain amount of distance who really knows how that land is technically? Own how deep down do you own it? You know, these are all these kind of weird legal questions, and the same with water. If this stream, if this tributary, this little freshwater pond, does this, this, and this, who's does it really belong to? How deep does it go? And it's just so freely available. It's so abundantly available. It's all over the place. Metal, you know, these days we've we've actually extracted or gathered most of you know ninety percent of the easily found metal let's say and we turn it into something or we processed it but it wasn't that long ago you know uh, where you could actually there were regions of the planet where you could walk around you didn't even have to dig and there were chunks of metal sitting around in the ground because so i, I said, read no,
0: to, to support your point i read uh recently roughly i, I don't remember the exact numbers but roughly there were uh, ore deposits of copper historically Uh, that you could dig out of the ground. And when you dig ore out, it's not a pure form of the metal. Mm -hmm. That's why I call it ore. But the concentration of what you want is the percentage. And in this this case, copper, it was something like 50% roughly. Now it's down to like 8%. And like the richest veins of copper today are in places like Chile where they've they've taken the stuff out. and, There's evidence it, and that's today of, down, it's it's down to closer to like 10% or less. And so you're you're having to basically put in more work to get the same output. Correct. Same thing with oil. Correct. I mean, same thing.
2: Same thing with water. You know, it used to be you could just walk up to a stream anywhere. And not only was there, a, a, you know, the rights issue maybe wasn't necessarily in place, but it was so abundant. You could just grab some potable fresh water, put it in a pail, and maybe sell it or maybe not sell it. Maybe water your garden with it, bathe with it, drink it, whatever. The, the same difference between – there, there was a point in the Americas where we had – this is thousands of years ago. But we had so much of this, co- again, copper in North America around the Great Lakes region literally sitting almost above ground. You could, you could harvest this metal with your bare hands. It was so easy. And there was, you know, how how can you make a market off of that? It's it's fundamentally difficult. And it's the same quandary that we're in with water now. You know, we've exhausted so many of the metal reserves around the world. Now there is an incredibly, incredibly complicated global commodities market around metal. There's an intensely complicated um, exchange around metal. There are you know, in huge logistics networks uh, on all of the major trading hubs of the planet, um, that are storehouses and processing houses. There are whole specialists who you know have very niche specialties in grading metal and taking care of it because it is it is scarce. And because you know now there's there's not only there's profits to be made, but you know, it's a scarce resource. this is how it's being managed, it's being managed through market economy and the same thing is going to happen is already happened with water um, and will continue to happen more it's scarce potable clean useful fresh water is uh, more scarce than it's been in a, in a long time not than it's ever been but in a long time and increasingly the other side of this equation is there's a larger and larger number of people consuming larger and larger amounts of water, so you have an exponential problem, literally an exponential problem there. You have two growth factors on top of each other. So of course, there's gonna be a commodities market, and of course, there's gonna be futures. And there's gonna be all kinds of options around those futures, there's gonna be all kinds of elements of pricing you have to take into effect. What is the annual rainfall gonna look like in certain regions? What is the acidification rate? What is the you know what are the underground aquifers look like are those going to dry up are those going to collapse what are the ecosystems look like you know there's so many levels of finance there's so many levels of commodities trading here around water now because it is a scarce thing you actually have we have to start worrying about it so it's kind of underlies i think what we were going to talk about today which is commodities trading particularly in the 20th century um, but in, in general um, and this water issue that's become so, I think, predominant in people's minds and the press um, is inevitable. The, the ship sailed on this hundreds of years ago, um, and there, there's, there's no way around it at this point. There's absolutely no way around it unless you know, untold number of, uh, of people on the planet just suddenly vanished. That this this you know this is going to be a thing. There is going to be a commodities market for,
0: for fresh water. So I I looked this up because I asked you what the uh, the ticker symbol is and uh, I don't know what it is. Well, I found it, uh, and I don't know if there's only one, but there is at least one uh, from the CME group, which is the largest um, commodities and futures, and, and I don't know if they specialize in options, but they do definitely do futures. Largest uh, commodities futures company. Uh, yes, for
2: the for the layman out there, that's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange.
0: Right, and they own um, what used to be the the NYMEX, the New York Mercantile Exchange. Uh, mm-hmm. They also own, I believe, the uh, CBOE, or actually, that's options. That's uh, if there's another Chicago thing in there. Uh, I'd have to look that up, but they're they're the biggest, and they're um, they're based in Chicago, as you said. And I've actually been to the trading floor. Um, the Chicago Board of Trade, that's what I was trying to say. Uh, and that actually still exists. It's an open outcry system. They've shut down most of what it used to be, but I think they still keep some of it, partly for marketing. It, they keep
2: these things for the television cameras. Yeah. Yeah, it's just because yeah. it's, it, it appeals you know you see this on like if you watch cnbc squawk box you know you have like the
0: new york the soccer same,
2: yeah. yeah the same gaggle of 50 dudes you know every day the every dinosaurs morning. in the back yeah with, who, with who the are, pot bellies who, and
0: the yeah and they have, <laughs> stupid have gray the, jackets
2: and yes they have yeah. the windbreakers and the ipads and doors and they're walking around screaming at each other even though it's not like, anymore now, no. No, kinda... they still do they still do the yelling because it's because you're right, it's for marketing. It's the nostalgia. Once all the boomers are dead and, and then most of the elder gen X are dead, they're gonna get rid of that because those are the only people that you know remember that sort of thing.
0: Well, is the, uh... Now that we're on the topic, okay, how did this all work? I mean obviously computers haven't been around forever and that's the predominant way people trade now. But, but... Hey,
2: before before okay. we, we switch topics, what was the what was the ticker symbol?
0: Okay, uh, the CME offers uh, a ticker NQH two O, and the reason it's NQ is it's based on the underlying. So this is a derivative. So just if you've ever heard the term derivative, remember the uh, collateralized debt obligations that blew up the economy in two thousand seven. The um, the derivatives system is basically you have an underlying security like corn. And then a derivative is basically a bet on the direction of that price in the future with a particular date tied to it. So if you go long corn, you you don't just have like this infinite timeline. You basically say corn will be X at Y date in the future. And that trades until basically the date happens and then the actual price is above or below it. And then if you're long and the actual price is above where you bought it you make money if it's below you lose money etc but the um this ticker is h2o for obvious reasons but nq is the nasdaq and they they derived this security or derivative i should say off of the nasdaq vels california water index now i just looked this up so i'd have to look Mm. into it how it actually works I cannot imagine. When I was asking, like, okay, how do you take delivery? I cannot imagine you're literally getting a a, a hose that goes into your your trading room at, at your hedge fund that gets water delivered to you if you hold the dumb thing. I think it's basically just a synthetic thing that is used for. They probably say it's used for hedging if you're a water utility and you don't want to misprice sure. your your customers or something, and you don't want to you know go broke. They, I guess, honor this stuff. A CME group probably just pays you depending on where the index is. Um, but it's um, it's an interesting concept, yeah. And it, it sort of makes sense. And, and to step back a little bit more, uh, I, I do want to talk about the open outcry, but why, why does this stuff even exist? Like the commodities trading, okay, that's obvious. Like, okay, you need to, you're hungry, but you're not a farmer, you're a blacksmith. So you go to town to trade your... Uh, your metal products, your hammers or whatever to the guy who grew some food or hunted it. And you go to a marketplace and you exchange. That's the commodity market um, for basic stuff. And so that's the trading of the underlyings that everybody can understand. You go to the store, it's the same thing uh, for food or groceries. But where it gets weird is the derivatives and the forward dating of it based on the prices of the possibilities in the future. That's where it gets more convoluted. And that was developed. The original concept was called a forward in the agricultural space in the United States around Chicago, because predominantly when the industrialized economy in the United States got going, the agricultural system started to nationalize in the sense that As opposed to in the past, you grew your own food and then maybe, you know, in the 1850s or something right before the railroads got big, uh, probably a little bit before that, you might sell to the town or the the regional area through some waterways or something. But you weren't like shipping your grain across the, the, the continent and the railroads kind of facilitated that. And so Chicago was a great hub for that sort of thing because they were on the Great Lakes. They were right in the middle of the Midwest where all the agricultural uh, wealth of the United States is based from the farmlands there, uh, and so they could ship all that grain into Chicago. And they used to have like stockyards there for uh, for pork and cattle. Um, that's why like pork bellies are traded in Chicago. All that crazy stuff, because that was the focal point for the physical trading and then exchanging and then transportation. So it was a logistics hub. That's how it got started, but the. The forwards were basically these concepts that were sold to farmers. So if you're a farmer, you're really uh, the biggest risk factor is the weather and also the price of your commodity, because you're really not able to differentiate your product that much. It's really just they, they kind of look at it and if it meets certain quality standards, there's not like a bunch of dead animals you know, in your or dead rats or something in your, in your sacks of grain. They'll pay you the market price, but they're not going to give you more because it's artisanal grain. It's basically a commodity. So you, you put this, you sell it basically at a grain uh, silo terminal, and then the train picks it up and then brings it off to places like Chicago. But you're subject to that price, and that price fluctuates because it's a huge market that you can't control, uh, and it's a very big risk because you can't control it like the weather. So those two things are, are things that farmers are worried about. Now, the weather, you can get things like crop insurance, which sort of insures you against things like that. That's another topic. But in terms of the price risk, where if you, if you borrow money and you're, you're, you do a, a financial projection where you can make money provided that the price of grain is 10, 10 whatever's, you know per whatever the, the unit is, $10 per sack of grain, let's just say that. Uh, and if you, can, if you can do that, if you can you know, borrow enough money, your interest rate is fixed, uh, you, you know how much it's going to cost to hire you know, the local farm kids to harvest it, uh, you do a budget, you can make a 10% margin or 5% margin on that, provided the price of grain stays at $10. The problem is the price of grain might drop to $5, and you're going to still owe that fixed uh, amount of money to the bank every month, and you're going to be screwed, so what they did was they developed this concept called a forward, which is basically you could enter a contract with somebody, a commodities broker that would basically say, look, I'm gonna, you can sell your grain to me in the future at a fixed price. And there's you know, a little bit of, of a fee involved, but you basically are guaranteed, no, no matter what, what the, the actual commodity spot price is, you're going to be able to sell your grain to that broker at harvest time for a fixed price. And that allows the farmer to basically say, "Oh, thank God, I'm not going to be worrying about this every night." And I can actually invest in my my fields now and not worry about it. And actually it, it probably encourages people to do more investment because there is that certainty there. So that that was called a forward and it's basically a forward into the future a, a fixed price. And those were traded uh sort of like back and forth I guess between probably private hands in places like Chicago, but that was the original concept, and that was used, that's used for purposes called hedging, which is just you're, you're going the opposite direction of your, your risk exposure. And so if one goes up, the other one goes down, they cancel out, and you basically are hedged, and that's basically the concept of it. That was the majority of actually the, the contracts that were written when this stuff first got started, it was about 90 or so percent. And then the rest was people who were in these little trading houses in Kansas city or wherever that are adjacent to this, um, production. They would, they would enter the contracts with the sort of hope that they would actually be able to outsmart the direction of what maybe the farmer is thinking. And they would, they would speculate. So that's the speculative part. Like it's, you're, you're just sort of, you're shorting a stock or you're, you're going long on a stock It's the same concept. Today, with the advent of the electronic exchanges and just the financialization of the economy in general, and the concept of a future being developed, which is a little bit different than a forward. I don't remember the exact nuances. It's basically the same thing, but it's the new concept. Uh, It's called a future. That is now actually taken up the majority of the trading. And now the farmer is almost like not even involved that much. Um, And it's created. some so, interesting very
2: little involvement. Distortions. In fact, a lot of yeah. this is handled through agents who often uh, operate on behalf of groups of farmers or farmers pay into a company. They have very little involvement in the futures market. Although, you, you know, a lot of even smaller farmers with decent operations will watch these futures markets very carefully because they are a great, obviously, a great indicator. Of price projection and hedging for those farmers who are actively considering what to plant, for example, or where the demand might be. Sure. Uh, but they, but you're right in the sense that they, it's not like the 19th century, where the farmers themselves are actively involved in these forward or futures contracts. You know, they're personally, or sometimes maybe there's only one intermediary between them and the negotiation of the contract in 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 some city, some hub, you know, Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee one of these cities that, right. uh, this is kind of how these cities came to be. And part of, you know, part, uh, part of what Adam is describing here, um, let me say that, uh, there's, there's a very good book, very elementary introductory book that covers a lot of these topics, um, called the futures and it's by an author named, uh, Emily Lambert. Um, it is not, you do not need to have any prior financial knowledge. In fact, it reads like anecdotal stories. Of the different kinds of basic futures markets, um, oil, pork, soybeans, wheat, corn, mostly from an American context, um, and it is very elementary basic history on a lot of these topics. But it, it's, it if you're curious to learn more, you kind of get a, a you know a very simple overview of it. Um, that was the direction that I would go in. Something I would add is that um, Adam is bringing up that there's quite a few of these clearing houses or these broker houses um, because this is the time when you had to be physically located somewhere and part of when we think about commodities trading you have to think about uh the actual hubs or cities where this is taking place huge aspect of commodity trading involves the building of supply chains not just for the goods themselves but the transference of those goods, the negotiation of the price of those goods, inspection of those goods, potential processing of those goods, they all interact. And they all then inform those supply chains, which then might change. So there's sort of a feedback loop at play, all the while keeping in mind the actual originating production point, whether it's agriculture, livestock, metal from a mine or, or from a mine uh, what have you so in the u.s you'll notice we have a lot of these cities particularly in the old northwest and the in the midwest in the great lakes region all the way up into new york let's say buffalo all the way down south across the mississippi uh what do you know a lot of these decaying you know seemingly now pointless cities have, uh, what are they why, why are they there these are terminals these are terminals they contain – a lot of them still do this business, not nearly as much, not as adva- not, not as involved as they used to be, but they still do this business. Uh, however, these are, these are terminals. These are places along rivers, or the occasional one that is not along a river or near a river is on pristine – perfectly flat ground that is easily traversable and you can build you know, rudimentary 19th century or pre-19th century sort of transportation networks to and from. And in the 19th century, across the planet, it wasn't just the United States. Uh, the United States had probably the most, along with uh, the UK, uh, probably the most involved and complicated agricultural trading system uh, it was all very rudimentary. It was mostly subsistence farmer types. Anyone with surplus was trading, you know, corn, barley, rye, oats, things like that. They didn't have great access to markets. They had these terminal markets that they could occasionally get to. They had often deals in these terminal market locations with processors, millers, anyone who can take what they're, you know, take what they're selling and, and can it, dry it, mill it turn into flour, whatever they need to do. That is kind of how the Ohio and the Mississippi River valleys get set up. And those are those states, you know, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, they couldn't really move this stuff very profitably at first. And this is another important element to you know, modern commodities trading as it gets going in the in the 19th century. And this has probably occurred at a few points throughout history before, when you have massive surpluses and you start seeing huge levels of profitability. You did see this to an extent in the uh, in the history of Rome, for example. There was at some point a great deal of surplus. Um, grain there was a great deal of profitability and you did have a rudimentary commodities trading market you did have people that were basically speculators they, they effectively made all of their money speculating and dealing with very crude financial instruments and the trading of surplus uh, goods surplus wheat whether it was from Gaul or egypt no different in this scenario what ultimately changed is that we had a huge level of agricultural surplus. The United States becomes this, this absolute um, behemoth in terms of agricultural knowledge. And what are we doing around this time? We're building the Erie Canal. We're connecting river systems that had never been connected before. We're creating new terminal hub cities. And this is, of course, how we get Chicago. Chicago is really the product of a very, very um, important move to connect the Illinois and the Mississippi Rivers. And when that was finally accomplished, um, suddenly the profitability to move goods soared.
0: Yeah, they actually had to dig. So the the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan is where Chicago is. It's right at the southern tip of it. And it, uh, it has, I guess the Illinois river that flows into it, but it doesn't connect to the Mississippi, but it was right. a matter of digging, I don't know, a mile or two where they actually were able to connect the great lakes to that gigant. I think it's the Mississippi is the largest navigable inland waterway in the world. Yes. It, it, it's, it's, unbel- I mean, we talked about Peter Z- Zahan, Zahan, uh, a couple of shows ago, and he brings this up uh, among other people because it, it really is astonishing how well positioned the United States is from a manufacturing logistics and agricultural point of view because of the Mississippi uh, River Delta and the river uh, drainage system. It's just, it integrates this continent together. Unlike places like Africa, which have inland cataracts that make it impossible to go up the river, except for the Nile, which is sort of, but it's such, it's a desert. And so you can't really get anywhere else useful except for the end of it. Um, And then there's not that many other places. The, The Chinese rivers are full of mud and there's Difficult places to go through. Yeah. Europe has a very small network of rivers. Russia's are horrible because they all flow into like the Arctic, and so they're frozen half the year. <laughs> and so it, it's amazing. And and the the Amazon, it's it's pretty good, but it's it's such dense uh, jungles, and I think they probably do have difficulty navigating it as well. It's
2: not it's not incredible. It's not very navigable. Yeah. There's there's a, there's a huge amount of problems in in actually navigating the um, the Amazon effectively, which has always been. An impediment uh, to the region and why Brazil's a joke is that uh, it has you know it's a giant Delta and you can't do a lot with it um, so it, it holds the country back tremendously but in you know in um, in the United States eventually you know because of this profitability that is now so easily attainable with the you know the Illinois River connecting to Lake Michigan. Um, and the Mississippi River now within reach. Uh, suddenly, you have a massive amount of merchants and small banks getting involved. And with those, you have large amounts of dealers. And like I said, agents, they are commi- they're called commission agents at the time. So you suddenly have the makings of a sort of pseudo-financial system just through lots and lots of counterparty deals being uh, invested back and forth. This is all sort of underlying the modern futures market, uh, which is unique. And it's nothing quite like this has existed in human history because um, there wasn't quite yet the agricultural – or there wasn't even – not just the agricultural, but commodity surpluses alongside – Um, you know, such vast sharing of human knowledge and just human communication, in addition to, you know, the most advanced supply chain networks ever developed. Suddenly, with all that profitability, you do have the ability to invest in warehouses, storehouses, you have new businesses that can pop up, and you have lots of people looking to get involved in sort of make money through arbitrage or make money through investments and you sort of need the futures market at that point because then it's becoming too complicated so the futures market then arises because you have thousands of people who are all dealing in counter you know have these counterparty deals with each other uh it makes no sense you have to sort of navigate your way through all of these business arrangements to determine the actual single price and the price isn't even elucidated anywhere. So of course the object becomes let's get a you know singular market going. Let's have an actual singular exchange where this is traded. Let's have these prices float. And that way yes those prices are the sum total of all these business exchanges going on. But at least it's clear and it, it's cohesive as to what that price is. And then that's where you get indexes and that's where you finally get, you know, actual hedging. And everybody can start to hedge. Then you have financial projection models. So suddenly everybody, including the low level farmer to the large investment banker on in the other side of the country, can start making, you know, real decisions about their future, what they're going to be doing. This is kind of why it was important to have a futures market because it in fundamentally it is a communication tool above all else it is it's a social technology. You're trying to, you know, build a foundation for people to make good long-term decisions in a more, you know, larger cohesive way. If anything, I will say probably going to get hated for this. The futures market, it was a nationalistic endeavor for the United States. It brought the country together. It was a single point of communication and it allowed people across the country to have a fair means of determining the price of their product and whether or not they wanted to continue investing or making that product or buying it.
0: I think it's a good point. I I don't... don't, who, Who would you anticipate disliking that point? I'm sure there's always somebody who's going to hate me for it. Well, there's probably this, people who don't like the buying and selling of yes, wholesale yeah. uh, aspects of people's lives. Exactly. Uh, you know, the types that are going to complain about the water which, which trading. Which is
2: a totally but... perverse. Yeah, this is that's that's a totally perverse level of this that is, un, you know, that is that's the specula- speculatory speculative level. And that existed in the nineteenth century
0: when this was going on. In fact, the futures it, it did, but it wasn't to the degree that it exists today. It wasn't
2: to the degree itself. And the futures market itself was actually sort of an invention to defeat speculation at first. It was a way of, of of solidifying the market, of providing stability in a single price point. Like this, this is this is a way you can actually, you know, sort of move. It, originally conceived as a way of moving speculators out getting rid of all these weird counterparty arbitrage opportunities and just allowing a farmer to sell his grain and allowing someone to buy it and having that price set in the future, you know, in case something arises like, man, this is so simple. And this is almost like a, a leveling of the playing field. And, you know, once this expanded in the United States to, everything outside of uh, a lot of a lot of this is just grain by the way this is as i've said um corn wheat oats barley stuff like that inevitably uh you're gonna Soy
0: see soybeans now
2: yeah no well yeah now soybeans dominate the uh, the agricultural market alfalfa the this sort of stuff is, is like well America. let
0: me give you because I was curious about this myself I wanted to see what are the top commodities by volume per day and it, it fluctuates so you'd have to look at you know long time series average it if you wanted to do this more comprehensively but we're not really getting paid to do this and I'm just curious so I looked it up and according to Yahoo Finance uh, and keep in mind the futures market has gotten kind of complex versus what we were just originally talking about today. So it includes things like financial derivatives. But the top one, and I confirm this because I I was at the Chicago Board of Trade and the biggest group of clusters of people on that trading floor were in this. It was the 10-year treasuries for the U.S. bond market uh, by far. But I'll just skip all the financial ones just to keep that in mind, though. There's others out there. But just the the physical commodities, um, I'll just name them off in biggest to smallest. Crude oil, shouldn't surprise too many people. It's an essential commodity. After that's gold, sort of a quasi-essential to life, but it's mainly a currency. So maybe that's on the margins of qualifying. But crude oil, definitely. Live cattle futures, hogs, natural gas, corn, copper. Silver, just because I mentioned gold, and then soybean, then feeder cattle. I guess there's different types of cattle, followed by platinum. uh Brent crude, which is the uh European North Sea stuff. Cotton, heating oil, orange juice. If you've ever seen the movie Trading Places, there's a really cool scene at the end where they trade frozen concentrated orange juice. uh, Gasoline, rice, palladium, and then lumber. Not surprising. It makes sense when you look at it, and yeah. and, and it should make sense. Uh, if there was something weird like a Doge Coin at the top, I think that we'd have a huge problem. Well, one, one uh, not one to the say we curious... don't have a problem, but we'd have a huge problem if Sheba Coin or whatever was like the number one thing people are spending time on. At least one this the, stuff is essential to like the operation of a modern society. And it's like, okay, it's not completely insane. Good. There's some, some sense to this oil. I get it. We need it. Right.
2: One, one of the more curious developments is definitely the futures market around currencies. Um, this is, this is a, totally
0: yeah by, uh, by you, dollar value i think it is yeah. like in the trillions but if you think about it like okay you're starting off with like large blocks and then you're not necessarily moving any product and so that number is not necessarily telling me that it's like the most important but it's like by the dollar or whatever yeah. currency you want to use it is i think the biggest
2: well yeah there's the futures market and the foreign exchange markets the, these markets are very peculiar in that they are truly um, huge feedback loop systems. And the problem is that you know fundamentally you're trying to price the futures for the American dollar. It's a, if you really think about it, this is a tremendously complicated thing because what you're really determining is what is the potential future value of the American dollar. Well, this is a this is the question that makes the world go around, you know, what is the value of the American dollar? Let alone what is the future value of the American
0: dollar? American and American and it's Chinese? so layered because it's it's it, there's trading pairs and so oh you really it's, it's, you're it's basing so it on one currency the and then that currency has its own exchanges with other currencies. So there's all these like complex networks of not loops even, going back and forth.
2: Not even just other currencies. All these other commodities, futures the oil is petrodollars
0: that, we that we've talked about. Exactly, have but it's it's also locked in sort of in there, and a lot yeah. of this is kind of uh, just like any currency. It's it's based on the concept in people's heads that it has value to begin with. Correct. And if we didn't need oil, all of a sudden, the price of Brent wouldn't really matter. But it is denominated in dollars because the dollar is strategically positioned by people in the state department and others to do that, to make the dollar more valuable internationally. So this, this
2: becomes the, the issue with evaluating the, the, you know, the, the future value of the dollar is that you're, you're instead of something as simple as the futures market for corn, which in and of itself is actually complicated, but relatively to the simple, what you're really thinking of when you're thinking of the value of the dollar is not just the the underlying value of all these other commodities that are being traded with the dollar um, and all these other currencies they can potentially buy with the dollar and what those values um, might be in, in some length of time but all these lengths of time are incredibly variable in and of themselves so this is you know the ultimate sort of multivariable multivariate problem in, in mathematics and that you have several dimensions here, value and time and fluctuations in value and time and how that feeds an underlying derivative, you know, it's it's like impossible. Now the flip side of this is that most people, when they're actually working in the futures market for the American dollar, they're working in the, the exchange markets for currencies. It's probably one of the markets, despite how complex it should be from an economic or an econometric standpoint, it is probably one of the few markets where people are actively not caring about the underlying value of anything. And I say that because if you ever speak with anybody who works in this industry, they will tell you that they're actually not really concerned with any of these underlying. Uh, phenomena, other than maybe at the macro level, right? Like there might be a massive war in two years, so that might affect the value. Or there might be a huge drop in all commodity sectors. But they're not really thinking, and they're not even really employing some kind of massive model that can give them all this insight into all these underlying values. It is ironically one of the few markets where you're going off of gut feel and macro conditions. Whereas all of the other commodities markets fundamentally are much more focused on both you know the macro conditions and individual micro conditions all the way down to you know a, a simple farmers collective in Minnesota that you know has decided to to renegotiate their, contra- you know their, their line of credit with the bank or whatever due to some reason for corn, like that can actually you know you're actually focusing on that. It, there's a there's so many weird things about the way we've constructed these commodities markets now that, um, the, extremely paradoxical. And the original intention behind these markets to provide you clarity, to provide better uh, better price fluidity, uh, hedging, diffi- hedging all of this. It's hard to say if. It's hard to say if if, if it's necessarily become easier and it's it's made things more efficient or it's simply made things more chaotic and we've simply rested on our laurels because we've had a a quite good amount of, excuse me, of technological progress that's kind of kept our economies going without these necessary price signals. Extremely, extremely fascinating topic that's now sort of dominating a lot of, you know, economic literature. Is, you know, are these markets actually working as intended anymore? Um, and and what are they actually providing if not anything more than just uh, opportunities for speculation? And I think that that is where people then kind of they boil themselves back down to, oh, it's all rigged, man. I hate these Wall Street Jews, like, you know, (laughs) that's where I think that's where some of that comes from and maybe rightfully so.
0: I think some of it is justified, but I think there's also to get rid of it and to replace it with a Soviet style Goss plan, I think is a huge mistake. If you talk to anybody who grew up or grew up in the basically the collapse of the Soviet bloc, they're going to tell you that central planning does not work full stop. It's just too hard for, even it's the commonly cited example, but I agree with it. You, you take Xi Jinping or whoever, who's an intelligent guy, obviously, but he, he doesn't have infinite knowledge and he cannot figure out, no matter how smart he is, if he had 48 hours in a day, he couldn't dictate every single decision that needs to be made in China because it's just too hard. There are trillions of decisions that need to be made every hour probably because there's billions of people. They've, well, maybe not, maybe not trillions per hour, but let's just say per year, at least there's going to be trillions and he doesn't have time for that. Like there's, it's impossible. So you have to delegate and how does that work? The pricing signal, it basically, it gives people an incentive and a, and a, information guide to what they should focus on. If something is low priced, I don't need to, I don't want to produce it. But if it's high priced, I want to produce it. And in and, and doing so, I actually lower the price down. That's the whole supply right. and demand thing. And that's what's so interesting about commodities markets. If you're interested in economics, it's really hard to sort of say, what are the economics of Facebook? It's like, it's not physical. It's kind of weird. Mark Zuckerberg's like you know eating bread and like the virtual metaverse. It's like what the hell is this? But if you talk about grain, it's a physical good. You need it, and the the microeconomic concept of supply and demand they meet in the middle where price uh, price is generated and creates a market clearing price, and then the the amount of amount of demand at that price is equal to the supply. And and if it's not equal, the price fluctuates until it is equal. And there's no shortages. There's no surpluses. It's a very efficient, interesting concept. And it actually... it it fits very well and it actually models correctly. There's a lot of accuracy in that model in these types of markets. And so it's, it's very clean and it also drives a lot of efficiencies because you don't need to have all these people making guesses. It's just, it's a collective system that that figures it out automatically without all this like central planning stuff, which is really hard. Um, The the criticism of it though, go ahead.
2: Well, what's great about to add to your point a little, what's great about commodity markets and why in, in some often very rudimentary fashion every civilization has attempted to create commodities markets of some kind uh, is that there's a tremendous expansion of opportunities for uh, widespread economic growth. And what do I mean by that necessarily? So if you suddenly create these markets of availability with you know good price signals This is like econ theory, but bears out in real life. So just stick with me for a minute. You create these price signals and you expand the availability of resources to all available parties. You do in actuality, you do see people when they are presented with this, they are able to take those resources and apply it to something. And, every civilization that we have a documented history of uh, going back to the mid-bronze Age, to the very loose has engaged in this activity. There's a, you know there's a tremendous amount of effort by the Hittite civilization put into commodity, clearly what were attempts at commodity markets for metals ranging all the way from Cornwall, to modern Uzbekistan. And what was the result of this? You know, the, the Hittite Empire had tremendous levels of economic activity. All evidence points to them having these huge workshops, large cities, lots of economic specialization, tremendous amount of economic power, which made them one of the dominant players in the region. The Mycenaeans had a similar system, which you know allowed for the creation of these palace economies, so to speak. And you know, you had obviously the great you know, sort of golden era of Egypt was at this time as well, for the same reasons. You had the bronze trade, you had the amber trade, all of these things going on. Every metal market, every every there was there's dozens of commodity market at this time. There was trading going across continents. And you wanted – these empires wanted to establish that. They wanted these markets expanded, not just to their own people but to everybody available because it allowed for more economic activity, which allowed – the selfish reason is tax revenue. But realistically, what that means is that you have more people doing more things, using more resources, employing them more effectively. You get all kinds of elements out of that. So you strategically want commodities markets. You want these things. And there's a natural evolution that was sort of figured out in the modern era, which are financial instruments that are a good means uh, – at the core, a good means of providing price signals, of providing opportunities to hedge, and providing um, large opportunities for – uh really better planning you can choose whether or not you know you want to potentially lock down a futures contract make sure you get some kind of set revenue and then you can experiment with some new project planning some new crop expand you know harvesting some new piece of land in the more you know complicated modern era you know you have Large companies who have these, you know, you have whole finance departments who decide, okay, we're going to lock down these futures contracts. We're going to set aside this money for R and D. We're going to try and pump out these three new product lines. We're going to invest in, you know, ergonomic chairs, like whatever. Th- these are important things you need to do, and the futures markets are like totally crucial piece of that. Huge chunk of the irony of the problem. you going back to the communism example is that despite the fact that the these countries were effectively run with giant ledgers, some of which were thousands of pages long, Yep. No, nobody had any idea what the hell anybody
0: else was doing. If you like linear algebra, this was your, your job. Like Nobody,
2: I, yeah, if you want to do some Gauss, Gauss illumination matrices. Gauss Jordan. Yeah, for the rest <laughs> of your life. Yeah. Those are the places for you, bud. But, man, nobody knew what was going on. Nobody, despite the price, literally being written well, down. Every we day. we talked
0: about Red Plenty. It's a really good right. book about how the Soviet system actually worked. And it was like, okay, you create a target, and then you work backwards from there. The Soviet okay, we the need system you know, had ten a great. Five units of that, a, and then they would sort of just dictate to these people, and it would be wrong inevitably. And so they would just have to like make it up, steal it, be just do, didn't didn't have it, you know. And there'd be shortages, and it just it would. It was it was really awful, and
2: it it functioned it functioned like like one of these civilizations out of the Bronze Age, where you effectively had like a very tight click at the top that would lay out a bunch of plants, and they would hit those plants. I want twenty five steel mills, I want a new building for the central planning committee, I want a new personal dacha. Uh, I want 50 new chemical processing factories or plants. You know, I want this, this, this. I want a better housing policy. Five years, do it. Five years later, holy shit, it's all done. They're missing the other half of it, though. What is this all for, by the way? Uh, what are we making with it? Where's this going? Is the steel going to make more steel mills? Are we selling any of this? Usually, T ninety
0: two tanks that get blown up in Ukraine when they're hit by, uh, javelin missiles.
2: Right? Is there a market for this? Who wants this stuff? If someone wants this,
0: it's an artificial. Are we
2: we trading it? Right? Are we trading it? Is there is there logistics network? You know, Soviet Union. There's this whole half that even you know civilizations in the Bronze Age had figured out that they just missed. And that is kind of where things like commodities markets, which they were practicing in a a rudimentary form, you know, 3,600 years ago, uh, that's why they exist, for these particular reasons, because you do need those. These are like fundamental economic laws that you do need to to get going.
0: Well, and to pick on the Soviets even more, I have two examples of how hypocritical it really was because they they claimed to have you know the most advanced economic uh, planning system ever invented and it had all the smart mathematicians which they did have smart people doing it but it's just a hard it's like an impossible problem it's like no matter how smart you are if you can't like physically do it like it's just not going to matter so the the two examples i had in mind were um, the they they when they create these plans they had to sort of assign importance to things, but they didn't have a concept of like a market price. So they had to put prices in there artificially. And what they would do is they would literally get or steal or have a spy basically mail it to them a copy of like the Sears Roebuck catalog and look at how things were essentially assigned priority So if something's more expensive, it's like, okay, that's more, what's more valuable. Okay. So they they would use this as a rough rubric for designing a lot of their, their central planning production goals. Uh, So like a mink coat would be harder to make. And so they would have like a certain value put on that because the price is higher in the catalog. So that's example one, they had to use a market-based system to actually drive their whole central planning system because it wouldn't work fundamentally. Two, you talk about commodities markets, they had to depend by the end of the, the end of the road of that whole model on exports of oil uh, and also imports of grain because their agricultural sector was so inefficient. They had to buy it from the United States, their arch enemy uh, in the seventies. And then by the eighties they had to sell their really, I mean, same, the same today. It's like the Russia is basically just an open mining pit of, of Europe and Asia. Uh, They they don't have anything much else that really people will disagree. But I'm sorry, I I don't see the evidence of their exports being really anything but raw commodities because their industrial sector was kept protected for so long. I, I talk about competition a lot, not because I'm some gung ho masochist or something. It's just if you don't compete, you will atrophy. It's just like an astronaut in the space shuttle. If he's up there for a year, I mean, well, cosmonauts actually had this problem. They would go up because uh, the Soviets loved to have like these, you know, records and the records book. They sent up a guy up there in, I don't know what year it was, but maybe it was the 90s. Maybe it was just Russia. But I remember seeing footage of this poor cosmonaut who had been in one of the Russian or Soviet space stations, like Mir or something. He was up there for like over a year. They bring him back. He couldn't walk. I mean, he had to get carried out in a stretcher because if you see if you know about you know what the astronauts have to do when they're up there they have to exercise like 6 hours a day to keep their muscles from basically like shriveling up and even then it's not enough and if for long exposures you have this problem so the same thing for the economy when you're basically you're guaranteed a job you're guaranteed a customer with which is like the soviet government what incentive do you have to really work on a new idea make efficiency gains because if you make an efficiency gain, Goss plan is just going to take away more of your resources and give it to somebody else. So you're going to try to just keep your targets and that, that's it and not report any surpluses and maybe sell it on the side in the black market. That's literally what they did. And then they, you know, use that to buy like a Mercedes or something, you know, hush, hush, don't tell anybody. But I've got a really nice bottle of French cognac. They would do stuff like that because they had no incentive to improve the company or the, the production unit of the steel mill or whatever it was. And so you do that for 70 years. And what, what turns out is that nobody wants to buy your shit that the cars, the Russian cars were terrible. They would break down. They, they horrible gas mileage. Um, so they didn't have any market internationally for that. So what they did have though was a great geographic footprint that you can't really, no matter how efficient you are, you can't like create, a gain on a zero if if you're if you're sitting on a piece of land like japan that has no oil you can make it more efficient of of a zero but a zero times anything is a zero so it didn't matter but the soviet empire had access to huge natural resources so they could still trade and export to get export dollars basically that they needed to then turn into goods that they needed to buy, you know, computers or something uh, on the black market because they couldn't produce that domestically. And Russia still in that same problem. I'm sorry. I, I know people disagree with this, but I, I don't see any, show me the numbers. Like what is Russia exporting aside from nickel, oil, natural gas, and maybe some steel, which is frankly a commodity at this point. It's, it's a really old technology. There, there's no advanced stuff coming out of that country. Not to say that Russians are dumb. It's just their their system was very crippling to them. Uh, and it, it really crippled their whole ability to, to compete. And, and China had the same problem until they opened up. And to give the Chinese a lot of credit, they were smart enough and their government was smart enough to also organize their system. And it, it's a large different topic, but I think the Soviet one is more clear as to like how central planning fails and how they had to depend on the international commodities markets to keep their government afloat in the eighties. Cause the price of oil went up and they were able to sell oil basically to, to pay for things they needed. Um, and then eventually it collapsed oil collapsed, you know, and that, that was very correlated with the decline in the, the Soviet union's economy. Um, so it's just, it's just very hard to get around the, the laws of economics. Um, I know people want to, but you just, it's just, it's like, it's almost like physics. It's like you, you may want something, but you're, you're still subject to what the rules are. Um, and when it comes to things like commodities trading, uh, I'm in full support of markets. However, what I will say is that when you're speculating and you, the speculator becomes dominant in the trading Uh, of that market and the production component of it shrinks to what it is today, which is like 10% versus it used to be 90%. Now it's like flipped over. I think there's, there's huge problems there because it creates a lot of incentives for people to, to cheat, to lie, to steal, which is harder to do when you're a farmer and like your, your inventory is like physically like visible. Like you, okay, I've, my field is right here. Like I can't like, create fraud and like, say I have like a million times more, I can't be a Sam Bankman freed and like do some computer you know typing and just create nothing, some, something out of nothing. That's another long topic, but it's in the news and anybody's interested about this. That, that was a huge, I'm sure most people know about it at this point, but it, it, it's a good example of how financial manipulation is, can be, can be bad. So I'm not saying that's, that's good. Fraud is not good. Um, but going back to the futures market, for example, where the, the trading has now become Predominantly speculation. I think that's problematic mainly because it creates more volatility in the sense that people want things to go up and down because if you buy low and sell high, you're gonna make more money, versus if it went up ten percent, you make ten percent, big deal. But if it goes down or ninety percent, then jumps up four hundred percent. If you bought it at the low, you know, you're you're in the thousands of percent gain from you know where it could have been before uh, at the, at the sort of like central level. So that creates incentives for distorting things, lying, cheating, which is not good. It's not productive. It's not creates efficiencies, And we do have some of that. And, uh, Hans and I wrote, uh, read a book, uh, about the, the world for sale. Um, and then I also, uh, independently, cause I read that book a while ago and, uh, I think Hans read it more recently. So I wanted to contribute a little bit more, uh, different, you know, contributions as opposed to, cause he could probably specialize in that better than me. Cause I'm a little bit uh, a stale in my knowledge of that book writing, but I read another book called uh, price wars and price wars is, um, it, it's not as, um, I think inside baseball as uh, the world for sale, which was written by a guy who used to work in commodities trading, or he, I think he worked at Bloomberg at least. And so he knew a lot of these guys, he had access to people who did these trades and deals, which is, which is great. Cause you, then you see the mechanics of it and it's a little bit more, uh, authentic hopefully, but the, the, um, price wars book is good and it was, came out this year and it's basically a commentary and it gives a lot of examples it's so a little bit of an ESG take on things: uh, equity, social, whatever, and then governance. That, that's the common term in investing circles. I think it's uh, environment. Uh, thank you. Yes, environment. So you know, like Tesla, Kathy Wood, people like that—they're all about uh, you know helping the world by making money. I guess. Most,
2: of you know, a um, lot of the ESG just boils down to uh, you know carbon credits and uh yeah, at least one of the members of your board has to be a transsexual or something <laughs> yeah. like that you know? <laughs> yeah And yeah, most of it just boils down to that like it's not it's really not more complicated
0: yeah yeah it, it's kind of annoying in my opinion but um but it, this book price wars it makes i think a, a a decent argument that with a lot of the speculators again wanting to have volatility because you make more money you can create massive disruptions in the physical world, which hurts people, you know, in the industrialized world, but it doesn't cripple them because let's face it, people have enough wealth to absorb those impacts. Um, I mean, the price of eggs I've mentioned before, I was actually looking at the commodities uh, prices on eggs. It's, it, it is legit. It's like reflected in, cause I've seen it in the store. The friggin' things are four times as expensive. They've gone up four times for whatever reason i don't think they're all burning the egg factories down on purpose maybe cuz other agricultural commodities have not gone up that much um, well, so it's it, kind of weird you, why, you really what happened to, to know, eggs but
2: if you really want to know what's going on with the egg market it has a lot to do with um, the poultry market of course and the poultry market in the united states has plummeted in terms of supply due to
0: but prices have, have not as much, at least when I was looking at the futures market. Although that one, I think, might have been based in, um, in Brazil. And so it, it could Yeah. Be and so
2: in the United sense. States, where we've been dealing with for the last couple of years various, particularly it's been very intense in the last year, um, uh, farmers being de- you know, demanded, <clears throat> the USDA, I'm sorry, demanding farmers uh, uh, cull their flocks. Due to potential bird flu outbreaks.
0: Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So that has obviously avian flu. raised. Yeah, that's yeah. raised the price of eggs. It's particularly actually. But but chicken price- hasn't gone up as much. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've I've heard that chicken has gone up a little bit, but uh, beef has gone down. <laughs> for also, just keep that in mind. It's not all. I like think up, that
2: there's but... yeah it's multi it's multivariate. There's also a lot of. Uh, last I had heard, there's lots of these. Uh, various USDA inspector positions or Q quality control positions that are currently not filled. And it takes more time to get poultry products, including eggs to market or something like that. And Mm. I don't know, there there's, there's a lot of weird uh, factors playing in, but the big one is definitely. Okay. Yeah. The bird flu scares. Well,
0: that's good to know. Um, That explains at least some, some of it to me. But what I was going to say was that, um, maybe eggs is not the best example, but it's a good example. Cause I think most cultures have a history of, in their cuisines, they eat eggs. Uh, it's a pretty common food in the United States. For example, the annual spend for the median or average, at least consumer, uh, on food uh, of their income as a percentage of their income is probably no more than 10%. Um, let's say the the median income in the United States is $40,000, roughly, uh, 4,000 bucks a year works out to a little over or a little under $400 a month. Uh, and so I can see that makes sense. I mean, it's probably even less, but if you only make $400 a year, uh, you're obviously not going to have that much to spend, uh, per month. And so you have to basically not buy expensive food. You have to eat grains and soybeans and all that crap. And But my point is, if the price jumps 400% on something that you do need to eat to survive, you're screwed. And so that's the argument of this book, Price Wars, is how detrimental this volatility can have on people. Uh, They give examples of in Venezuela, which is sort of another quasi- almost not communist, but it, it had a very big social welfare system based on oil that was Hugo Chavez's thing. He actually entered office, according to the book, because I, I wasn't very familiar with Venezuela's political history, but the book kind of explained it. And and the journalist went down there and actually interviewed a, a lot of people in uh, Caracas, the major city there. And, um, to give some flavor on it. A lot, a lot of good anecdotal evidence in the book, maybe not as quantitative, but a lot of good anecdotes. But he, he said that, um, the author said that the original, po- uh, objective of Chavez was to actually be very pro business. Um, he wanted to, he, cause he criticized the behavior of the governments, uh, in the past for being, I don't know, very inefficient, and so he wanted to bring in modern business techniques and you know basically grow the economy. That shifted, uh, for whatever reason, for political reasons, but he basically started dictating to the different um, sectors of the economy, predominantly oil, which is obviously their their major sector, the most important sector in Venezuela. And when he tried to take over um, their national operations or just nationalize it outright. Um, that's when he got attacked. And then I think he started blaming that on the United States, which partly is probably true. And then he got really hardcore into like giving out handouts to the country, uh, the people, the common people, which, you know, I'm not going to say he doesn't have a right to the problem with that though, was it depended on the price of oil staying where it was. And when the price plummeted, he couldn't maintain those government budgets. And so they started printing money and then they went into hyperinflation mode. And that's when the lives of the citizens went down, down the drain and it got to the point where, and people have talked about this for years now and I think it's gotten better, but it's still, I think pretty bad because this book was written uh, or published this year. Um, he he gives examples where women are sterilizing themselves because they can't afford more children um he went to a restaurant where the waiter he gave him this like long page printout with like routing numbers of banks because you can't even transact anymore in like the local currency or if you did it would just be inflated away and it wouldn't be worth anything once you went to the bank Literally, that's what happens with hyperinflation. You're paid for something in hyperinflation. You walk down the street to the bank to go deposit it. The damn thing is is like pennies on the dollar by the time you get there in the matter of a day. Um, that's hyperinflation. So what they would do at these restaurants is they'd give you a piece of paper. says, write in your, um, your bank account an amount of money you want to give to us, and we're going to wire it directly, electronically at the end of the day, in another currency that's not subject to hyperinflation and this of course is illegal or it's like quasi legal and so they have all these police officers running around like basically arresting people for doing stuff like this and uh and then if you say anything bad about the government then you're arrested uh, it's pretty bad and there's another guy who he talked to who was um It was like a rail like he he just he couldn't eat anymore. And uh, he had um, he'd saved himself by becoming a a professional gamer for World of Warcraft or something (laughs) like that with League of Legends. I don't play these games, but it's one of these games where uh, you have to put time in and then they call it like farming. Like, you get uh, enough gold coins in World of Warcraft so you can buy a suit of armor. But it's, like, really boring to do all that, like, um, me- like methodical, repetitive work. So they hire guys in Venezuela to log in with your account and then, like, click, click the, the mouse button all day so that when the rich guy who paid this guy 20 bucks a month to do this, but it, that's a lot to this guy, uh, in Venezuela. But when the rich guy logs in, he has like a new suit of armor. He didn't have to do it himself. So he, he survived by doing this nonsense. And, but he was showing the journalist, uh, the author pictures of how overweight he used to be before the economy fell apart and hyperinflation happened. Uh, he was like, he was fat. And, and now he's like, he's wearing his like billowy t-shirts because he's so skinny. Cause like he couldn't eat every day. Like he'd have to skip meals, like not just every day, like throughout the week, he would like not eat for a couple of days and then he would like have enough money to buy something, uh, to eat. So it got horrible. And, and that's what this type of stuff, when it really hits home, you know, this isn't all fun and games where you're making money or losing money on your brokerage account, it actually hurts people in their real lives. And, and I don't think that's good. Um, I think having price signals is important. I think having adjustments is necessary, whether it's nice or not, it, you have to do it. Um, but up and down, up and down, up and down in the course of a day, it's, it's silly and it doesn't really add information. It just confuses things and it causes problems like this. So I would say that's a legitimate critique of financialization and too much trading. How do you fix it? That's that's another question because you don't want to get rid of the good things I think that price signals have and replace it with something that clearly doesn't work like central planning in my opinion. But, and many people who grew up in it by the way, but you do have problems too in these market systems. And so, I think the question is how do you balance the advantages of both where you have some stability, guarantees for human decency, et cetera, but have Efficiency that you ultimately do need to have, because if you go on and on and on for decades and you have these zombie businesses that are basically just not going to function if you if you don 't force them to get better that 's a problem in the long run so it 's tough stuff it's it 's a hard problem, but I think uh, it's a it 's an interesting focal point to really understand it all when you have a global market, you have all these price signals it 's super complicated it 's super interesting there's lots of players. Hans, do you want to talk about that that book, by the way? Because Mark Rich uh, is like super famous. There's a lot of like color that we can add to like who are these people, who are these traders, stuff like that. Um, where did you want to go with this, Nick? Do you want to chime in?
2: Yeah, we haven't heard from Nick the entire episode. This
0: is this is a rarity. Well, I guess he uh, he's still working on his beer. But if you're around Nick, he's really nursing that thing.
1: <laughs> uh,
2: I've been listening. I, mean, I, I my internet's not very good, so I don't want to interrupt. Um, Are you using the beer can I, to like produce, don't, you know, get your internet signal
0: out? Yeah, the bottle. But... Uh, <laughs> bottle, bottle.
2: Yeah,
1: I, 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 just don't. I don't have a lot to contribute. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure it's as much of a either or when it comes to like having some kind of market. Or central planning. It's. I think that we might be going into a, a world where some of the stuff is not really as relevant anymore, because you no longer have the American hegemony. I, mean, I suppose you still have trade, but we will also have the return of you know piracy and just general warlordism. <laughs>
0: Well, that was the point of Peter Zion and we talked about it a little bit where you were asking the question, "Why do you need a navy?" Uh, and that was his argument as to like why you need to mitigate theft, basically on the oceans. Um, and do you so, like
2: paying for things, you know, that's basically why do you why do you need a navy? Like, do you want to, you know, just be able to buy something and have it delivered? You want to access have
0: access to it, at yeah, exactly. a price that's not you know highway robbery, um, right? Yeah. But anyway, this is these, this is actually one of the concepts, tremendous.
2: Yeah. Actually, this is this is a good point, next bringing up because one of the. Um, so the, the, let me just say that the other book that Adam is talking about is uh, this book called "A World for Sale." Yeah. And uh, is he from Bloomberg?
0: Are, who, who's the author? Right.
2: Yeah. Okay. So there's 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 the um, there's the two authors. The main author who did I, I honestly think a lot of the work, <laughs> and has definitely been the face of the marketing campaign in promoting the book uh, is Javier Blas. Yeah. And he is a Bloomberg writer. The other gentleman is a uh, is a financial times reporter or either was a financial times reporter or currently is. Um, but yes, they they collaborated on this book called The World for Sale. And it came out last year? I think, yeah,
0: last year. Um, really, Maybe 2020, of, but it, it, pretty recent something like that
2: I, I want to say it was last year it, it I'll really took every it took, every, it it, it took yeah. everybody by storm and it, it was a very popular book still is and it's definitely catapulted um, people like Javier Blas to the height of like you know um, modern financial commentary and stuff like that he's definitely almost like a, a go-to source for a lot of a lot of people now he has a, a lot of contacts and access to a great deal of these companies' data, and so he's able to sort of tease out um, uh, a lot of information that can be useful and just relatively interesting. Uh, The book itself is uh, entirely about uh, commodities trading, predominantly focusing on the period after
0: 1950. Yeah, you're correct. It's last year, 2021. And the the reason it focuses on... um, uh, it looks like they're both Bloomberg but you're, the second uh, guy is also uh, Financial Times previously yeah. previously, but they're both at Bloomberg now
2: um, it takes place after 1950 primarily because the, the subject of commodities markets part of 1950 gets deeply into historiography where there are less sources uh, for inside baseball so to speak and it's more difficult to get access to a, um, precise quantitative figures. Um, I actually came across a very, very intriguing um, paper while I was doing research for this topic. And it, um, we'll link it. it. It was It's called uh, Commodity Market Integration, uh, 1500 to 2000. And it's sort of a broad sweep of you know commodity market history uh, written by... Uh, two guys at um, the National Bureau of Economic Research and you know the paper covers commodity uh, uh, markets as it says going back to 1500 um, primarily focuses on the price revolution starting in the 17th century and the introduction of silver which acted as a good pricing arbitrage point but more to the point when reading that paper you know they're, they're reliant on the um, uh sources that do do not go into great detail about the inside baseball the exact players what their frame of mind was the more precise relationships between these uh, trading houses of which there were many at the time um, and that have evolved over time particularly in europe is where a lot of this a lot of the paper focuses so in order if you wanted to write a book going back all that way be 800-900 pages and a lot of it would not have the kind of um, storytelling that I think that these journalists like to do. Uh, to give you kind of a quick review of the book, uh, maybe Adam will agree with me. It's a good book. It reads like a series of long, extended Bloomberg articles. <laughs> it has a very, very Bloomberg, Financial Times, you know. Um, article long form article way of reading each chapter maybe sort of links to the other um they're very anecdotal lots of very particular precise figures and sometimes it's hard to understand why exactly these figures are being included other than they're tossed in um in a a style that you know sort of mandated by the Financial Times, by Bloomberg, by CNBC, because they're trying to convey market prices to you while you're reading the article, so you feel as though you're up to date on the market price. Uh, I think that that is, to an extent, the, the way that this is written. It's well written. I think it presents um, its case well. But realistically, it doesn't have that much of a case. Um, th- there is no real case it's simply a a extreme long form article dealing with what is the what you know from well, it's reporting it's reporting. Yeah, from 1950 till now what is the state of the commodities uh, trading houses yeah and what is the inside baseball there's a little bit of drama intrigue the opening prologue is very much like a um, like a long form article that you'd find in like an op, you know, like, like in time magazine, you know, it's detailing this guy who works for, um, no, it's, it's Vital. He works for Vital and, um, which is the, uh, he's, he's some kind of Brit that works for Vittal and, and they engage in a lot of um, oil extraction and storage technologies around the world. And so he's working on behalf of, of this company and he's engaging in a deal in, revolutionary libya in 2011 so he's engaging in these deals on behalf of uh, vital and uh the british foreign office and some saudi uh gulf interests and you know it's it's kind of like very kind of stand on the back of your or stand on the front of your seat and you're like getting really engaged and um it, it, it ends up you know this story has nothing to do with the rest of the of the book It's just a nice anecdotal story to introduce you um, to the world of commodities trading and how it all really works and what these relationships are currently like. Uh, So on that level, I would say it is a a good book. Definitely, I would have – I think you did it over an audio book, right? You were like working or something like that yeah
0: yeah yeah i, I, I should have a lot of this. my books to audio yeah, yeah. so i just can do i should
2: have done this over an audiobook while i was like you know doing dishes or something it depends it was, on it,
0: the the complexity of the the topic <laughs> i mean if it's math or engineering i can't do that it's impossible yeah, like, you like need to look at this, it But
2: like reading this like random paper i found this is definitely something i was sitting down and wanting to read and really get into it because it had some interesting
0: well, there's probably good charts that I completely missed, <laughs> but I, I, no, I could understand the human components, you know, there's not a lot of great charts, honestly, they're all like That's at surprising. the end. That seems very like a, a good way to, to add color to your, your story. I know. Charts. I thought
2: if it was going to be a bloom, you know, if it was an extended Bloomberg thing, it'd just I mean, be why like, why are
0: uh, Bloomberg terminals guys?
2: 40, 40 pages of charts. Yeah. What are these, what do these assholes have those terminals for? for editors screwed up. For, printing those out like left and right. Yeah. Yeah. This whole thing is a giant, uh, advertisement for the Bloomberg terminal. That's why they, uh, they sanctioned this book.
0: <laughs> yeah. You need to use the terminal to see the charts. <laughs> exactly. You need the terminal. It's like, to get God, it. here, here's a CD ROM that you need to install to like, uh, get a trial version of Bloomberg where you'll, you'll be able to look at what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah
2: exactly. <laughs> it's a The tra- poor man's trial version. Um, yeah, So the the fundamental premise, if there is one, is basically uh, how did the current post-1950, post-World War II commodities trading uh, market get into place? And more broadly, how did these large conglomerate trading houses get into place? Um, And how did they build their current stakeholder relationships, their supply chains, uh, and their current market value really? There's four primary reasons that uh, that the authors list out. Uh, at the number and this kind of gets to the point Nick was making. Um, uh, so the first they mention is that there was a huge opening of markets that were previously tightly controlled, primarily oil, or broadly let's say the energy market. Because when we're saying the we're not not just oil. I think that they make a mistake right off the bat. They should say the energy market. Because suddenly we had huge commodities trading for nuclear fissile materials, for example, which allowed for the mass expansion of the energy markets, in, in particularly in Europe and other parts of the world, and to an extent in the United States. Um, we had huge amounts of investments starting in the 70s in natural gas. So it wasn't just oil. There were, there were whole commodities markets – it hadn't really been exploited or hadn't even been invented yet. There hadn't been any traders, hadn't been any trading houses, there hadn't been any infrastructure, storage capacity, any of that in place yet. There were no exchanges. There were, there were no tech or symbols. There's nothing. So it's it's really not just oil, as they say, but it's probably the energy market, I want to say. Uh, and... There was sort of a – they do point out early on and then throughout the rest of the novel, uh, the novel book, about this wave of nationalizations that happened in the oil industry in the the 70s. And it knocked out um, the grip that the Seven Sisters, so to speak, had, which are the seven dominant oil conglomerates around the world. Uh, When this happened – You had nations from Syria to Venezuela who could suddenly use their national um, state-owned or partially state-owned enterprises to sell as much oil onto the market as possible. And the natural consequence of this And the reason they were doing it was fundamentally you had lots of poor states that needed revenue immediately to invest in In their military, their infrastructure, social services, um, bringing themselves up to the rest of the civilized world. This is colloquially, it was originally termed the third world or the second world, so to speak, in, in Cold War terms. Suddenly, instead of having large companies that dominated the supply chain, and they could tightly control the market. You had nations competing with one another for markets. Now, this is sort of not new. This is actually very old. And when I was reading this paper I found from National Bureau of Economic Research, this is actually how business was conducted, so to speak, um, in the 1500s and 1600s. You did have private interests, uh, but you did have national policies, and you had – tight relationships between interests and the governments. Um, they act as one and you had sort of national resource policies, whether it was you know the spice trade or silver or other certain commodities uh, or even just livestock, they were acting in concert. And the natural result of this actually was a lowering of prices and suddenly the, price, and the products were far more widely available. And when the products become far more widely available, as we said earlier, more profitability, more room to grow, more economic activity happening, and suddenly there's all kinds of opportunities for the actual commodities markets to start. Once the once there's more of these products in place, there's there's a greater quantity of them. You can actually have a you know a functioning market with financial opportunities. That's the sort of the the first premise that they uh, speculate uh the second thing to point out is that uh the second and third have to do with um america's two primary communist rivals uh which is the soviet union and china but the inverse relationship between them the fall of the soviet union and the rise of china when the soviet union started to really collapse and it didn't just collapse in the 90s it was already falling apart and prior to that the Soviet Union was engaging in a fair amount of commodities exchange on the open market, not to the not to a wide extent the way that other countries or companies were. But Soviet products and Soviet um, resources were making their way onto the market, which were slowly allowing for greater levels of supply in the wider market. It could be then traded multiple times over, and um, then you have a real functioning commodities futures market around that. But particularly as the Soviet Union started to fall apart in the 70s and 80s and then finally collapsed in the 90s, those resources became more and more available until they became entirely available. Russia today is is, just a huge commodities trading power. There's lots of smaller outfits out of Russia, lots of business relationships with American and and European companies that conduct huge amounts of – Uh, commodities trading in Russia and out of Russia and in other parts of the former Soviet Union as well, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Ukraine, everywhere. Uh, Thirdly, uh, the rise of China. Uh, China is, and not just China really, I think this is another area where where they're they're really missing the broader point in that In the 80s and 90s, we had a wave of uh, tiger events, I like to call them. We had the Celtic tiger events with Ireland. We had the Asian tigers. We had the Latin tigers. There was this trend in the late 80s and throughout the 90s of countries suddenly amassing huge amounts of economic growth, investing in large amounts of infrastructure, companies building out their departments – Governments expanding civil services, populations growing. And yes, most of these countries faced all kinds of weird financial shocks. The Mexicans, the Thais, the Taiwanese, the Irish. Everybody faced something strange, but then they grew out of it. They continued to grow. And the fundamental pieces in place for that demand were there. Uh, so it wasn't just China. There were, China was actually – it really is a holdover from this weird tiger period, of the 90s, It has never stopped growing. Uh, It's just one of many. If you go back to the 90s, China was regarded as basically in the same league as Mexico and probably a a rung below Singapore in terms of its economic potential. It was a growing economy, but nobody really at the time considered it to be – that it could be the behemoth that it is now. Uh, but these countries play a huge role in the current commodities boom because they have just the insane amount of consumption that they engage in. There is just so much that hasn't been built in a lot of these countries. I don't think people quite understand how
0: … Well, when you say our, our consumption, they consume raw materials, but they also produce manufactured goods and then finished goods yes, yes, and, and yes. engineering, infrastructure, et cetera. Cons- they, they are consuming immense, immense
2: amounts of, of commodities. Just in. in yeah, exactly. engorging, and whether you know whether they're 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 just doing something with the raw materials, they're turning it into building supplies, they're turning it into finished products. It doesn't matter. These places are growing so hot. So they, they gave uh,
0: the book gave us. I wrote this down. The book gave a statistic on the effects of Chinese industrialization uh, and what it did to the their consumption of raw materials. So in the case of copper, which you need for electrification mainly. Um, in 1990, uh, China consumed as much as Italy, which has a population one-tenth, probably one-fifteenth the size of China. So China was clearly behind per capita. In 2000, it was three times Italy, so catching up per capita. In 2017, 20 times per capita. It's probably ahead of Italy, and this was half the world supply. Uh, and a lot of that consumption, uh, does go into their infrastructure build out and domestic consumption of electronics, uh, and industrial products like motors and things like that, that go into finished goods, of uh, the China, we all know Chinese makes, you know, crap at Walmart, like your, uh, your snowblower or something that's got an electric mower motor in it, uh, or other types. They need copper, but it also is for the export market. So domestically and, and the world. So a lot of that. Number 20X, Italy, um, it's not per capita consumption. It also is per capita production because that a lot of that stuff is exported uh, because China's really become the world's factory, at least as of 2017, it probably is changing. Uh, the, I mean, the, the irony of the whole like Democrat versus Republican thing is, um, we, we all know a lot of it is, is BS, but the Biden administration and the Trump administration, they've gone in a straight line in terms of trade policy. There really hasn't been any deviation. The de- Deviation was partly in immigration policy, perhaps, and obviously the woke stuff uh, and who your uh, press secretary is and what she looks like. But the um, although I think Trump hired a lot of women for that job, but <clears throat> they were a lot a lot more attractive, in my opinion. Uh, that's an aside. But their trade policy has been pretty consistent, especially in China. And it's it's kind of funny. I think the Democrats are realizing that the Trump branch of the Republicans stole a lot from their playbook, like Clinton did from the Republicans in the 90s. And they've pivoted back to speaking about labor unions again, protecting domestic manufacturing, which I, I support. I don't like the Democratic Party, nor the Republicans that much either. But it's really funny how a lot of this political stuff masks underlying trends, and I think, uh, you know, whether COVID was a, was a CIA attack or not on China, it had the effect of basically distancing China from the global supply chain uh, through health health restrictions or just inaction of, of trade sanctions. But uh, it's it's interesting to watch this stuff in the future because I, I think the, the the story of China is unprecedented in history, but none of this stuff always, none of this stuff goes in a straight line forever. Um, you know, I talk about Trump and Biden going in a straight line on trade, but I mean, American election cycles are microscopic in historical terms. So it's like a four years. And so that's a long time for America, but on a global scale, it's not And China has been going really strong for 30, almost 40 years now. And, I think Zihan has a point in that they're starting to uh, to reach their limits of that, and I think a lot of the world is not wanting them to continue their rise because they're basically a threat. So just wanted to add some numbers and some color on that.
2: Well, the fourth primary <clears throat> factor that allowed for the growth of the commodities trading market was the rise of modern finance. Uh, beginning in the 80s, they point out. But it wasn't just you know the, the financialization. It was the fact that there was so much available credit. For the first time in world history, the whole world could offer you credit. This is a tremendous achievement uh, in a lot of ways because suddenly you could go to nearly any region on the planet, it's a solicit investment, to get a line of credit for any other kind of economic activity and this is done enough times to the point where there's suddenly a huge amount of infrastructure for building out logistics networks shipping networks storage infrastructure office buildings for traders to sit in electronics to use and most importantly, abundant amounts of capital to uh, acquire large amounts of commodities at the current price and then perform you know, some levels of trade and arbitrage to then pull to profit and engage in whether it was stockpiling or other kinds of business deals to attempt to generate value. So when you combine all these together, by the end of the 80s and by the 90s, when you know, Mark Rich in particular um, is you know, engaging in billions of dollars worth of business, uh, suddenly you have you know, re- the, you know, the modern, complex commodities trading market that we think of today. And it's at the point now where, as we were saying at the beginning with water, you know, pretty much anything can have uh, commodity traders focused on it.
0: Well, I don't know if the book goes into Enron. Uh, I can't remember at least if they went into Enron. But Enron was, um, they obviously, well, maybe not obvious, but if people don't know, Enron started off as a midstream energy distributor in other words they had pipelines that carried things like natural gas to utilities and provided actually, a le- legitimate I'm service
2: they, i'm checking i'm checking my notes and uh, in the book they they do mention Enron they actually they go into it a little bit p- please continue
0: yeah, yeah and I, I was just going to say that you know the origins of Enron were i think most people would agree pretty legitimate in that what they're doing is is an essential service i mean obviously gas it's not going to be transmissible unless it's in a pipeline because it'll just dissipate throughout the air. So you have to have an infrastructure set up so that you can move this stuff around and not lose it. So that that's what they did. And obviously you're involved in brokering deals between uh, natural gas fields and the producers there who want to sell it to customers like utilities or uh, industrial chemical chemical plants that need to use the natural gas to make things like fertilizer that we've talked about this like ad nauseum this year because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, disrupting the uh, natural gas markets, which affects the production of uh, urea, which is NH three, I think. And then it, it, it gets built into fertilizer, which affects the agricultural supply chain. Anyway, Enron used to do that stuff. They, I think they maintained their pipeline infrastructure, but what they ended up doing in the nineties that got them in trouble was they started doing the speculation stuff. And what made Enron worse was that they committed fraud <laughs> on a huge scale. Uh, yeah. And they, what I was going to say though was that they, or what made me think of this was, you're talking about all these kind of weird or crazy derivatives, not crazy, but more uh, extensive usage of derivatives throughout history today versus the past. Enron was doing stuff that back in the day was. I don't, I still think that they don't do it, but they wanted to get into creating these markets to basically make money and manipulate people and cook the books and uh, screw people over to make themselves rich. But they were trying to get into broadband trading. And I remember literally reading that in the newspaper, like right before they blew up, um, they, or the, some magazine, but it was some business magazine, but it was, uh, it was fascinating how, that pattern is still true today where these, a lot of these companies, if you look at uh, what the new stuff is, it's, it's more around the different type of energy, but it's, it's more about carbon. Now there's a lot of Mm -hmm. futures in the carbon market. There's uh, I had some slides that I'll put in the um, video version of this, but the, uh, where is it? I'll have to, here it is. Um, So yeah, they have these indices that are based on energy, but a lot of renewables as well, or non-fossil fuels, at least a nuclear energy index, wind energy, solar energy. This just, this didn't exist before. Uh, they have electricity markets now, uh, that was existent in the past, but it was much more regulated. And Enron was actually one of the big controversial players in the nineties. And I think they blew up in 2001, 2002, Something like that. Very early in the 2000s. But they were involved in a lot of the pushes for dere- deregulation of the uh, electrical electrical power market in countries like Britain. Uh, at least companies like Enron were doing that. And then in the United States, they're obviously pushing it. Um, Texas has a, a market exchange that... It partly the got them in old, trouble with goose the, the winter freeze, but California, uh, I'm yeah, I'm assuming it was say going,
2: California, yeah, it was, the, it was the golden goose at the time, yeah, yeah,
0: and that they, they were recording. So, if we ever do a show on Enron, which I'd like to do, maybe, um, we'll get you can. More, I mean, the you know, the
2: best introductory stuff to Enron is always smartest that the smartest guys in the room, was a yeah, it's still so perfectly fine. For uh, it's a good documentary that holds up. Pretty well. It's a good you know, insight into how that company ran. But yes, you're right. It was a it was a legit company. I think that this is a, a fact that people forget. It was actually um, almost a competitor in a lot of ways to.
0: Um, well, there's there's a few to, uh, like to, a Kinder Morgan, Koch Brothers it, probably do it. There's a lot of midstream guys that yeah, transport there, there this stuff. Of,
2: there were a lot of um, a lot of companies that were conducting these kinds of operations in the in the 80s and 90s. Coke industry and, and companies. There were there were a lot of vertically integrated companies doing this as well, and a lot of them weren't American. It, there was a fair amount of Europeans involved in this, and uh, you know, Glencore, Vital, uh, uh Gunvor. You know, there's there's Mercuria. There's tons of uh, various Europeans involved at all levels. Of and there's a lot of smaller outfits, there's independent traders um, that are involved in this business, and um, it, there is there is a genuine competition I think between the United States and Europe in, in this regard. And Enron was realistically, if we if we kind of wind the clock back, was a comp- <clears throat> was a competition uh, to in the '90s was in competition to with. Two large, um, uh, large companies, Shell and BP, and the book goes into. This is one of. The, there's a lot of these anecdotal stories from the book. Um, as it's kind of tracing the history of the industry. But one of the things the book notes is that in there's a great deal of vertical integration, as I said, and centralization. So you have companies that are involved in operation, actual physical operations who also have trading houses internally. You have companies that own huge amounts of land that are engaged in large-scale agricultural projects that also have an internal trading house. Cargill is one of the best examples of that, and it's part of the reason why it's such a formidable private company and, and so large is that there's so many levels of the agricultural industry that are integrated within Cargill. And it allows them to not only produce the product, allows them to trade their own product and other products in the open market and sort of game the market in uh, a lot of countries and a lot of regions uh, around the world.
0: So I've got some names that are also in agriculture uh, from this book. Uh, they call it the ABCD. These are the big ones. Uh, Archer Daniels Midland, ADM, uh, used to sponsor a lot of stuff on PBS. <laughs> That's actually one that I'm familiar with from that. Uh, Bunge, they're European. Uh, Cargill is American and Louis Dreyfus, I'm assuming is French. Uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus, I think is related to that family by the way, but, um, those are the bags and then the, the metals, uh, are Glencore, uh, Transf- transfigura and probably some, some more, but that's, those are the top in the top ones in the book. Uh,
2: Going back to, um, th- thank you for that. Thank you. For th- that's that's good context. Going back to uh, my point, so Enron was in competition with um, some of these vertically integrated companies, including BP and Shell, and um, Vital is another another example uh, of a company they're they're in competition with. Uh, and so in the, uh, the authors note that in the '90s, in the late '90s. Um, BP in particular became very interested in algorithmic trading. And they wanted to sort of corner the market. Um, They wanted to have a a huge advantage in the trading houses. Um, They wanted to buoy that with the profits from their their, their core oil revenue business. And so they hired tons of these. They wanted a huge expansion and consolidation spree. uh, And they tried to make a huge presence on the, on the trading side and they weren't really great um, uh, at actually performing the riskier bets. And in particular, they really struggled to figure out how to take advantage of the emerging post-communist world, so to speak. This is where Enron came in. Um, and so Enron, as you said, started as a pipeline company. And this is a company that was actually engaged in real commodities trading. They had real physical infrastructure that they actually owned and operated, which is interesting. Um, they had a lot of, they had even small manufacturing processes. Yeah,
0: they they you know, used to be headquartered they, in Houston. And they, if, you, they, if they you've they ever were, been in were Houston, real, that's where all company. this stuff
2: is. Yeah, they, they were a real company that happened to have a, a trading company block that they grew and then it became an actual large-scale commodity trading company um and it was mostly focused in the energy sector but what enron in particular became uh fascinated with was one of the factors that was talked about uh as earlier on which is you know one of the how, how this industry came to grow so much was the the collapse of the old cold world order or cold war order order and uh there were a slew of companies and countries around the world that were suddenly available for doing business. Enron was one of the few companies, for example, that wanted to jump into India. Enron wanted to jump into Africa. Enron wanted to get involved in Russia. You know, Enron was, was expanding its operations in the United States at the same time. There was a lot, you know, if you were willing to try and expand to the third world, you could quickly uh, gain a huge amount of advantage in the market. Now, these are extremely risky bets, though. And this is part of what ended up defeating Enron and why the company ultimately turned to fraud in a lot of ways because they had made so many risky investments. They had overextended themselves. But they were really one of the first companies to try and take advantage of of the death of the Soviet Union and and, the the end of the Cold War and all of these countries now on the open market, ready to do business. Uh, So Enron, in a lot of ways, the legacy of Enron is really pushing this forward and getting Western countries involved in the post-communist world for commodities trading because they created a a fantastic – blueprint for what to do and what not to do, and a lot of companies followed thereafter. They figured out how to accurately assess a lot of the riskier, uh, pricier bets, whether it was expanding into a country's energy market, or expanding into their lumber market, or trying to build a, a logistics network between two countries, or trying to deal with someone's government. Enron kind of was the test case for all of this. And it didn't really pay off it, in the long run. Obviously, the company's defunct. But this is one area where they actually played a huge role, it, and they were they were definitely a large part of, of that big push. Uh, there's a lot of other sort of apocryphal um, uh, stories, or you know, that uh, the Phillips Brothers um, group, which was an extremely large uh, commodities trading group, in, in, during the Cold War era. Was, uh, was like many of these commodities traders, uh, the book points out, um, basically were apolitical. So one aspect of the industry is that when you're, when you're really focused on physical products, you suddenly have a lot less interest in um, ideology. And this was true even during the height of the Cold War. At one point, Phillips Brothers was selling ferrous alloy materials – from that were made and manufactured in the Soviet Union and East Germany to companies in the United States and vice versa uh, and a lot of these companies um, you know were had attempted to get involved with the Soviet Union during the 80s and had some of them had minor levels of success and these are often companies that you will that you will find are not particularly interested in as Adam was talking about earlier the ESG metrics Um Something that's very striking about this industry, is, as I was just saying, is that when you're dealing with physical items, ideology is out the window. There's too much, there's too many complicated variables to take into account, let alone, of, of, you know, potentially offending a country's yeah. government.
0: Well, it's or, you know, it's bad for business. It's a good point. I had it's extremely it that bad way, for
2: business. It, for but, for a business yeah. that is complicated in real world. is you know, th- these were – we're trying to get back 45 metric tons of gold to the United States on a ship, uh, and we're crossing 13 different sea lanes, we're going through different exclusive economic zones. The last thing we need to be doing is telling these countries that they need to have a pride parade anytime soon. Like, you know, This is not exactly, we don't need to add any additional risk to this already cumbersome operation.
0: Right, because it, it, well. I think, I think that's a good example of when you're, you're not engaged in empire building with an infinite money printer backing you up and you're really having to eke out a living doing this stuff. And you do have 43 hands that it has to pass through sets of hands that this, these transactions have to pass through. What is the common denominator that's going to connect everybody? It's usually self gain, monetary gain, interest, selfish interest. It's not going to be what religion are you, what ideology are you, what language do you speak even. You add more variables that they all have to agree on, the less likely all of them are going to work together. Because, again, you just think of it as a random probability system. You limit the number of differences, the higher the chance they're going to unify together on a common thread. And, you know, most people are selfish. And so you could say, look, we're going to make money. It's a Silk Road. I buy it for 10. I sell it to you for 11. You sell it for 12, et cetera, et cetera. Each, each party has an incentive. But if you start telling the guy, I don't like how you look or I don't like your religion or I don't like your, your political system. I mean, the guy's just going to say, screw you. I'm going to go to the other guy and buy, buy it for the same price or maybe a little more because I don't like you. So it's you get very pragmatic very fast in this stuff. And and the book does a good job. Like It, it shows – how Mark Rich, uh, I forget a lot of the other names, which I apologize to anybody who wants to I mean, Mar- go Mark hardcore Rich is, into this, is, but is he comes up a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah and, you know, in a lot of ways, it is the Mark Rich biography. He's not an interesting enough figure to do an entire book on, I don't think, but it's, it's sort of his unofficial. <laughs> his unofficial biography is the life of Mark Rich, particularly because... He is so involved in uh, several of these outfits and, and early companies that would go on to dominate, including Glencore. Well, he, did the, he didn't uh,
0: he basically build Glencore. He might have joined yeah, it yeah. when it was smaller, or he founded it. But he was at Phillips Brothers first, yeah, and then he became yeah, and then he became um, kind of the dominant guy at Glencore pretty quickly from my understanding and and yeah. just real quick, the example I was going to give based on your point about sort of 43 sets of hands that a supply chain of traders has to form. they all have to hold hands basically. Um, how do you do that? Well, you, you don't interrupt people with, you know, complexities. You simplify as much as possible. And there was an example where he was like the guy who was um, turning the lights on in Jamaica. I think one of these Caribbean islands, because you know the U.S. press is writing bad things about the guy, and it's probably true, by the way. But the the, the Jamaicans still need oil, and I think uh, the the prime minister, the president, called, or his finance minister called Mark Rich at like three in the morning, and it was like, "We need oil," and the guy's like, "What the hell? Why are you calling me uh, in the middle of the night?" Uh, you know, call my office in the morning. But by the time Rich got to the office and he had this like crazy work ethic where he would be there at, like seven in the morning and like, if people got there late, he had all these, you know, uh, evil eyes. He'd projected people for being, uh, being lazy, but, um, but he got there and he basically sent a ship um, by the next, next day. And, and they were able to get their, their oil supplies. So he dealt with these, you know, dictators and people like that. Just, because he He's wanted really to make money, but it was, was also, not to defend him, but he, he was providing, obviously, uh, an essential service because he was willing to make those trades. Um, and nobody else would, you know, the ESG requirements of banks today. <laughs> and Back in the yeah, 80s, it was probably... And, and, they well, they wouldn't do it, right? ESG so.
2: requirements are not really being applied to these commodities traders. They, they don't really seem to be affected by it thus far. But in regards to Mark Rich, you know, he... It's probably one of the few men on the planet that can say that he was he was friendly with both uh, uh, Castro and Pinochet at the same time. If you could believe that. Oh sure. He was, prim- and you know, this is this is a guy who was friends with Muammar Gaddafi, Nikolai Ceausescu,
0: and and Augusto Pinochet, and Bill time. Clinton, or yeah, at least, and uh, Bill- Somebody <laughs> was tell- telling Clinton to do that, but. <laughs>
2: He, you know, this and this is talking about a Jew. Yeah. you Don't say say interesting. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, he is uh, he does fit the stereotype uh, despite being a wildly interesting guy. He is uh, he is what he is. And he goes without saying that people like him. Uh, as well as uh, Tornqvist who was the uh, the Swedish guy uh, the Swedish guy who behind Gunvor um, and a few other characters their you know their role cannot be overstated in their capability to basically act as the the lifeline for businesses and entire countries if needed um Instead of necessarily having to conduct, you know, a complicated level, a state level business with um, another country, let's say, and go through that bureaucracy, you can contact these traders. If you, if the market is not actually functioning, which these traders have put in tons of effort over the decades to make sure that it functions to a T and that anyone can go on there and buy these commodities. Um, you can basically contact these trading houses directly and say, "What is your storage capacity? What does your supply chain look like? You know, who who can get me a ship here by this date with this much of you know of a, of a certain product?" And they will do it. They will make it happen. And that you know you can go back into fifteen hundreds of Europe and probably go back into the Bronze Age of the Mediterranean and, and the Near East. And you will find characters like this, I'm sure. Maybe they didn't operate on the same time scale, weeks instead of days, months instead of weeks. But these same characters have always existed whenever you've had any kind of large-scale functioning civilization. And that's fundamentally what the book is about as well, is <clears throat> not really even these companies and the figures here and there. It's really, you know, it's a it's it is a good piece of extended journalism about a type of profession ultimately um that allows for the, the quick uh movement and deployment of adequate resources where they're needed when they're wanted.
0: So I had a, a few more anecdotes. If uh, we want to round out the show uh, that I took from this book that I thought were interesting, Uh, Russia's obviously in the news today and a lot of what it's doing, I think is a consequence of what happened in the nineties because of various reasons, which I'm sure people are pretty aware of, but I think uh, just to give color to what, what it was like in Russia in the nineties and how difficult it was for the average Russian citizen, especially, but also like why, why was this stuff occurring with the the gangsterism and the corruption at highest levels, wholesale pieces of the Russian or Soviet former Soviet economy being bought off and, and bundled up and controlled by very few numbers of people. How did that happen? Why did it happen? Uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, the commodities markets, and the book uh, gives some examples, but just to kind of give a broad overview before I jump in the uh, again the the Soviet system was a very closed off system. it protected a lot of industries for the benefit of political continuity, obviously, but also ostensibly to protect the workers' uh, ability to keep their families fed, which is I think legitimate, but it unfortunately just it it couldn't keep up with the rest of the world, and so that's why it fell apart. But nonetheless, when it did, uh, the 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 remnants of that system that had still some use to the rest of the world, which at that point the Russians had to deal with because they had busted everything up inside or the world effectively had outpaced them so that they had to bust it up themselves. And they they had to feed themselves somehow. So they're looking around, uh, you know, I don't want to get too graphic, but obviously there's been a lot of human trafficking out of places like Russia. But aside from that, natural resources, other than the human resources of their women and also the intellectual capital of the Soviet academic uh, legacy was also a big thing, but they lost a lot of people to that. It was a brain drain. A lot of them went to Wall Street, places like that. But um, the uh, the natural resources were still there. The people who stayed in Russia, that's what was left. And so you're looking at things like Norilsk Nickel, um, people like uh, Oleg Deripaska, who I think controls that. Uh, there's another guy named Vladimir Potatin, who's another n- metals guy. Uh, he's until recently, I think, the richest um, richest Russian uh, on publicly accepted, <laughs> published things, you know, and maybe, maybe people think Putin actually has a lot of secret wealth tucked away, but nonetheless, uh, you see a pattern emerging. A lot of the, the natural resources are where these guys are getting a lot of their money. Uh, oil obviously was big, uh, until uh, Kordakovsky was arrested by Putin. Uh, he was up there in terms of the rankings, guys like Berzovsky uh, who fled to Britain, uh, was involved in a myriad of industries. Actually, he was in automaking, uh, believe it or not for a while, he ended up getting into uh, media, I believe. Uh, and then, uh, what's his face who owns, uh, Chelsea or something. One of these British uh, football clubs. Um, I'm forgetting his name. He lives in the Bahamas now, <laughs> but, uh, or one of these, uh, one of these Caribbean places he had to flee basically too. uh, but, it was a it was a fire sale. There was a whole lot of uh, shenanigans going on, and commodities uh, players were trying to get a piece. And the Russians were smart enough to keep a lot of it for themselves, but they were selling to these traders. Uh, and there were these funny anecdotes in the book that uh, things like, for some reason, Pepsi was involved. Pepsi Cola was involved in Russia. And they took possession of 19 Soviet submarines because the scrap value of the metal in the submarines was equivalent to whatever they were uh, giving, I guess, the, the, maybe they were just selling diet soda or something or, or pop, depending on what part of the country you're from. But uh, to Russians, they, they took an exchange uh, submarines because it was metal. you know, submarines are useless, but I need the raw materials. A lot of that stuff was happening. Um, Oil obviously was, was a big thing. Natural gas is still relevant. Uh, And then aluminum was, uh, was kind of cool or interesting optically. There probably should be some movies made about this, but they had something called the aluminum wars where people were basically assassinating each other to take possession of a lot of these aluminum works in these uh, busted out Russian cities that are got these concrete housing blocks and everybody who lives there does one thing and they work in the aluminum mill and they have some giant hydroelectric dam or something uh, that powers this thing and uh, or have nuclear plants or something like that. Um, just super, super interesting optics, but that's what was going on. And again, it's all raw materials. How does this stuff get out of the country? Well, you have guys like Mark Mark Rich and others who are cutting deals. People like from South Africa are involved. Eastern Europeans um, are, are doing this. And then uh, similar story in, in Africa also where I think as opposed to as much of uh, the sort of European Western world kind of going into Eastern Europe, it was, it was the Chinese that obviously went into Africa. And there were uh, cases where the uh, sub-Saharan African economies, according to the book, quadrupled uh, or or more uh, in terms of their economies from the year 2000 when the Ch- uh, Chinese were ex- uh, accepted into the World Trade Organization. And that was a huge boon to the African economies, at least on the macro scale. On the micro scale, uh, I don't know how much of that wealth was shared with the smaller member or the, uh, the poor members of their society. I would imagine a lot of it was captured by the usual suspects who are corrupt in the government or corrupt companies, et cetera, taking the lion's share of that. But, um, there, there are a lot of other, uh, e- even worse examples, um, in Africa too, where, uh, the book talks about in the Congo where there were, uh, Today, we we, we know about the electrification of automotive electric vehicles causing a lot of mining uh, of cobalt in places like Congo. But also in Congo, there was a, a case where Transfigura paid some government, local government, regional government, I don't know, in the Congo to dispose of toxic waste. And so that was a case where Africa was getting money to receive sort of a a raw material that that is actually very dangerous obviously and the book mentions this the the corruption was i think pretty apparent given the effects on the people that were located close to this stuff but the um the, the fact was that it was just the africans were willing to be paid a very small amount of money to do this as opposed to other places that had more wealth and were were not willing to to part with it, and Africa was desperate, and so they ended up being the recipient of it. But the example of the lack of due diligence and due process, and whatever was um, involved in this agreement, was that the uh, the document that Transfigura had with this government was 108 words, and I, I mean, I don't, I think we've probably gone over several thousand, if not more, words in this podcast alone tonight, but the, um, the piece of paper, probably one sheet basically said, uh, don't put it too close to the city because it will smell bad. Uh, and that was their sort of environmental, uh, environmental process. Uh, you know, forgetting the fact that you dump this stuff, there might be somebody, not in the city center that might get affected by it or it might get into the water table or it might uh, contaminate crops or who who the heck knows, right? But um, Africa was, was kind of exploited both directions. And uh, whose fault does that? I mean, there's many people, including the Africans, I would argue, but um, that's just the fact of how this stuff happens. This is sort of a random assortment of things. I guess I can leave it at that. But um, Hans, do you have anything more? And then I'll maybe give my concluding thoughts. If, if you don't, why don't you give your concluding thoughts, Adam? Well, I'm just, I'm just sort of going free form here. Um, I wanted to end the the show with, uh, I guess I'll just introduce it. Um, I mentioned the movie, uh, trading places. Um, uh, it has Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd who I, I, I both like and they, uh, they did a good job and most of the movie I, I have a really, uh, good, good feeling for, but really it's a, it's not necessarily about commodities. That's just the vehicle or the MacGuffin, I guess is the the term to get to the story. That is basically why the movie is there. It's to sell tickets obviously, and to make it a funny story. But the premise is, is interesting because it's based on this concept of you take a a homeless man played by Eddie Murphy off the streets of, uh, I think it's actually in Philadelphia uh, back when Philadelphia probably had some semblance of a commodities exchange. Uh, and then they do end up at the end of the movie going to New York to, to do the final trading. But um, Eddie Murphy is a Vietnam vet or just a homeless guy pretending to be wanted to get handouts. And there are these wealthy uh, commodities brokers. Br- they're brothers and they make a bet between each other. And they're going to um, they're going to see if... There really is anything to this, like uh, polished education that they're they come from, and they're also their their employees come from. Uh, They want to see if it even adds any any alpha. They call it in the uh, trading world, Um, without getting to what that means. But it's basically you're 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 better than the average on the uh, of the stock market or something like that. You're better than the average. You add your additional. Percentage returns per year—you call that alpha—and they want to know if there's alpha from an elite education. That's the guy played by Dan Aykroyd. He's the protege. He's being groomed for this job. And the brothers like, do, do we even need to pay for this stuff? Like, maybe we just get some guy off the street. So that's the whole premise. They they get Eddie Murphy. They bring him in. They they give him, you know, the the whole like nine yard treatment. Give him a nice suit. Give him a fine fine uh, dinner. And they say, we would like you to pick commodities uh for us and and make bets and we're gonna compare you against this other guy played by dan Aykroyd, uh and we're gonna see if you're better and it turns out eddie murphy's pretty good at it um so that's the whole premise of like why dan Aykroyd gets pissed off and then they kind of go through all this and the end of the movie is that they end up agreeing and working together because they kind of Find the whole premise distasteful because they they're they're being manipulated by these two wealthy men, and they end up screwing them um, in this final scene, which I'll put at the end of the uh, the show, where they end up um, tricking the market for frozen concentrated orange juice to basically create a panic for prices where they end up buying on the cheap and they're, they're actually short selling and then they cover at the low point. It's a little complicated to explain, uh, over a podcast, but if you watch the movie, it'll hopefully make more sense, but it's a good glimpse of what the, the players involved, these brokers, these speculators, these traders, uh, they, they have a, a part of the, uh, the ending scene where they're all tuned into the Department of Agriculture that's going to give a crop report on the prospects of the weather and how, how much orange juice is basically going to be able to, to be produced from growing oranges. And you can see how immediately that impacts the prices because when they say, I think it was basically there's going to be uh, warm weather, there's going to be a lot of oranges grown. What that does is it creates more supply it's harder if you're an orange producer to sell it when there's other people ha- that have a lot of oranges too. So you have to lower your price and that, that causes the price to plunge. And so there's an excess supply. So that's what happens in the trading floor in the matter of like minutes. Like it's just immediate where these signals are moving around, which obviously is not directly tied to the real economy at that speed. But ultimately it does translate into real world effects and it, it is reflective also of the real world. And I think it's a very interesting glimpse at how the pricing mechanism mirrors and also affects things. And so I think it's it's a good movie to to illustrate that and understand it. But also, what's interesting and good about the movie is it's a period piece because it's set in the '80s, and this is still showing the open outcry system, which really doesn't function like it used to anymore because it's not necessary. It's done electronically because the old system was very inefficient. You had to have a a board seat or a trading license or whatever it was to actually go engage. And you were representing behind you brokerage houses, which were in turn representing either farmers or commodities, traders or banks or whoever else wants to trade this stuff. All of this stuff gets dumped into the central node where these transactions take place. And because it needs to be done at high volume, very quickly and very accurately you have to have very specialized people who know how to do this but because of the speed at which it happens and the very large dollar amounts involved it's very precarious and stressful and there's a lot of room for error because people are literally shouting at each other you have numbers on your your vest and if somebody wants to sell you something and you point at the guy you're supposed to write down the number and if you looked at the wrong person or he misunderstood you there's all this chance for, for screwing it up. It's have people watching this to make sure that there's, uh, honesty and, and people aren't screwing, screwing up. And, and you see how messy it is, uh, back in, back in the day before the computerization of all of it. So I think it, it, it demonstrates how it worked, how we got to where we are, why we got to where we are and why it's important, but also how it can be manipulated. So I think it's a very good way to synthesize what we've been talking about is, is to watch that movie. It's, I I recommend it. Um, I, I I found it, found it enjoyable, but also educational, um, if as an introduction, but going forward, what do you take away from all that after reading these books, talking about it? What do we do as the little people? Um, I, I would say first and foremost, understand basically as much as you can, about how this stuff affects you, because it does. The price of oil, the price of eggs, the things we've talked about affect everybody. What can you do about it is the harder question, but maybe arguably the more important question. Um, You could take concepts of hedging into your own life, perhaps. Um, Try to understand, like, if you are a business person, putting all of your your business into one line of business that's subject to global prices is perhaps very dangerous if you have to do that look into things like hedging. If you're just an average consumer, maybe you don't, um, obsess about getting particular goods at all, at all times. Maybe have a basket of things that you can consume. I mean, I'm just coming up with these on the fly, but, um, I find this stuff fascinating. I think it is relevant. Um, and whether or not it, it is changed at a macro political level is really outside of my control. First of all, and most people listening to this, I would, I would imagine as well. So it really isn't all that, important, whether you think it's good or bad, it's really, what do you take away from it? Um And I think we've also demonstrated, or at least made the case for the fact that it probably cannot be improved upon too much. At least I haven't seen any system that it's, it seems much better. And there are obviously cases where there's a lot of corruption, but I think there are also cases where you take away that market system where it's also very bad as well. And so I think keeping all that in mind when you're hearing politicians talk, I think is helpful. Um, It's probably best to tune out whatever they say, no matter what, but this stuff does affect you. Try to understand as much as you can, and uh, hopefully that helps. And that's all I'll say.
1: What 2 for Six! Six! That's That's Hey, hey, the Dukes are trying to corner the market. They know something. I can feel it. Let's get in on it. Take him! 130! 200, 200! No Not yet! Almost! 220, take him! 209! Yeah, yeah, got him! 139!
2: 140!
1: Hey, today, today, let me have a look at that! Now, i Sound in April of 142! <laughs> That's not right. How can the price be going down? Something's wrong. Where's Wilson? What are they doing here? They're selling, Mortimer. Well, that's ridiculous. Unless the crop report. God help us. shouldn't have committed everything you asshole i've got to get wilson and tell him to sell Ladies and gentlemen, the orange crop estimates for the next year. After calculating the estimates from various orange-producing states, we have concluded the following: the cold winter has apparently not affected the orange harvest. <laughs> <large separately. laughs> can expect orange and orange juice prices to fall this winter. Saints, South! So, sell, sell. but I, I, I just i Five? a yeah, hundred, a hundred. So, oh, did you yeah, get that? I got that you That was a hundred lots. A hundred. <laughs> Happy New Year! Winter! Valentine! Hey, how'd you make out today? How could you do this to us after everything we've done for you?
0: Oh, see, I made Louis a bet here. Lewis bet me that we couldn't both get rich and put you on the poorhouse at the same time. He didn't think we could do it. I won. I lost. One dollar.
2: Thank you, Lewis. After you. Certainly.
1: <laughs> Margin call, gentlemen. You can't expect us to... You know the rules of the exchange, Mr. Duke. All accounts to be settled at the end of the day's trading, without exception. You know perfectly well we don't have $394 million in cash. I'm sorry, boys. Put the uh, Duke brothers' seats on the exchange up for sale at once. Seize all assets of Duke and Duke Commodities Brokers, as well as all personal holdings of Randolph and Mortimer Duke. My God. We're ruined. Uh, This is an outrage. I demand an investigation! You can't sell our seats! A duke has been sitting around this exchange since it was founded! We founded this exchange! It's ours! It belongs to us! My God. Your brother's not well. We'd better call an ambulance. Fuck him! Now you listen to me! Our train reopens right now! Get those brokers back in here! Turn those machines back on! Turn those machines back on!